Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. Again, if you're visiting with us, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. We're glad to have you here. If you haven't been here recently, uh, we're picking up today. We're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John, a series that we've been entitling. We've entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. For the last couple weeks, we've seen how in Jesus, God changes our beginnings. That in Jesus, God rewrites our stories. And that in Jesus, God changes our callings. That because of Jesus, we don't anymore need to be the hero. Because Jesus is the hero. And so you and I are left with the part of just telling His story. Well, today we're going we're gonna to dive a little deeper be, be, below those. We're going to dive a little deeper and look at how Jesus changes our longings. How Jesus changes our longings. We're going to do that by picking up where we left off last in John John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to begin by reading the the passage we're going to be looking at today. Again, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. While you're turning there, let me just remind you of what we saw last week, that this gospel begins with the transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. From the ministry of one who tells the story to the one the story is about. And so we're going to pick up again in John chapter 2, and this really brings that transition to a close. So turn with me, if you would, John chapter 2, again, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through to verse 12. This is God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum 
with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, John writes of this miracle, this wonder, this turning of water into wine as a, as a sign. Yet for the majority of those there, they didn't see the significance. It was a sign, but they didn't see what it was pointing to. For the majority of those who drank the wine, they didn't understand its meaning. And that through it, Jesus was making known for what seems like the very first time His glory. But the disciples saw it, at least in part, and they believed in Him. And I pray today that we would as well. That Jesus would continue to be lifted up in our lives. In His name I pray. And for His fame I pray. Amen. To live is to long. Would you agree with that? To live is to long. We talk about life as a journey, about man's search for meaning, about hope and the yearning of the heart for what's over the next horizon. Because to live is to long. It's what lies behind the establishment of empires. It's what lies behind the drive to discover. It's what lies behind the need to, to, to tame new frontiers. Because to live is to long. But if we're honest with ourselves, the most significant longings of life are those that never are truly satisfied. Think about it. The things you want most out of life, the, that that cause your, your head to ache and your, your heart to break. Those longings that run deepest are precisely the wells we are unable to ever really fill. And one of the places I think this comes out the most is with marriage. One of the most universal longings, one of the most foundational longings of the human heart is for companionship. The one who said it is not good for man to be alone, was right. But whether you're on the outside of marriage looking in or on the inside of marriage looking around, the fact of the matter remains that even the, this climax of companionship cannot satisfy the longing. To live is to long though life never satisfies the longing. But the problem, I think, isn't with the longing. And in this particular case, it isn't with marriage, but that we often make marriage or whatever else it is that we're running after, after into to something it was never meant to be. We try, we try to take what's meant to be a means and we attempt to make it an end. We take what's, what's meant to whet our appetites for something else and act like it's meant to satisfy the longing. 
but it, can, it never really can, can it? And I'm all for food, I'm all for fun, and whatever else we long for in life under God, but we ruin it. We ruin something like marriage, both for those on the outside looking in and for us on the inside looking around, we ruin it if we make it an end. To live is to long, though life never satisfies the longing. Because our satisfaction is meant to be found in something more. Today we're going to learn this lesson about marriage, this lesson about longing, as we step into this wedding at Cana, where ironically, we're going to learn it from the single guy. But it's not because this single guy who who happens to be Jesus doesn't have marriage on his mind. It's because he sees in this marriage at Cana, first, the better marriage that it's pointing to, that is second, celebrated with a better wine. And if we're to understand marriage right, if we're to understand longing, even in general, and, and what to do with it, We have to learn to see through marriage or anything else the better marriage that it's pointing to. That is second, celebrated with a better wine. So first, seeing with Jesus through this marriage at Cana, the better marriage that it's pointing to. But before we get to Jesus, uh, let me just point out a few things in this story. Let's pick up in verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And you, you have to remember where, what we looked at last week when it says here, on the third day. Remember, this gospel begins by narrating the transition between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, between the ministry of the one who's telling the story, one who tells the story, and the ministry of, of the one about whom the story is told. And it narrates this transition over the course of a, of a number of days. Day one, John confesses that he's not the one everyone's waiting for. Day two, that Jesus is the one, the, the Lamb of God, who baptizes with the Spirit of God, which makes him the Son of God. Day three, John says it again, behold, the Lamb. But this time, two of his disciples get the hint and turn to follow Jesus, and each one reaching one, one of these two goes and finds his brother Peter. And then on day four, each one reaching one, Peter finds Philip, and then Philip finds Nathaniel, and Philip's the last one who says something about it. He says, we have found him, the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote, come and see. To which Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. But that's where this wedding comes in. It's the first installment of those greater things, but it's on the third day. The third day from the last day that was mentioned, day four, day five, day six. Day six. So, so, so that just as a wedding brought to a climax God's work in creation on the, on the sixth day of creation, so too here, looking back at the wedding of Adam and Eve, so too here, 
in God's rewriting the story in Jesus, he comes to a wedding at the very climax of that first week on the sixth day of the inauguration of his ministry. And for a single guy showing up at a wedding, the only question is, why? You know, I read a tweet this week. I was looking at tweets. I don't know why, but I was looking at tweets this week. I was looking at a tweet by a single guy who said this. The only way I'm coming to your wedding is if you get me a gift. You just found lifelong love. I think I deserve a blender more than you do. Another guy at was in this tweet world, tweeted something, and it was a picture. And at the bottom, the caption read, my friends had a photo booth at their wedding, so I went in and sat perfectly still, alone. You've got to go online to see the pictures. But the question is, What is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus show up? In Judaism, a rabbi wasn't only allowed to get married, but was expected to get married. So why does this single guy, he's already been hailed as a, a rabbi, why does this single guy show up to a social event where he would stick out like a sore thumb? It says on the third day there was a, a wedding at Cana in Galilee, but the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, but when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And we're not told why Mary was so concerned about this wedding. We're not told even more particularly why she was so concerned with the wine. But it doesn't take much to imagine the social disaster that was unraveling at that moment. That nobody in the know would have been, would have not been concerned about. I remember um, when Kath and I were a little less overrun in life, we were still, we still had enough energy, we used to throw these rather elaborate birthday parties for our kids. And I remember one of them, uh, we pretty much tag-teamed the whole thing, we put this thing together, and uh, we got to a point where it was time to buy the food. And though we tag-teamed everything else, I told Catherine, I got this. I'll go get the food. I'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. And I can keep it under budget. So I went out. I did pretty good. I, I got finger foods. I took care of the drinks. And then it came to getting the cake. Problem is, I only had three bucks left at that time, and you can't buy much cake with three bucks. But our kids' birthdays happen to fall just shortly after Halloween, so all the seasonal stuff goes on sale for like 90% off. So I had three bucks, and I found this carton of cupcakes for a buck fifty, and I said, This is it. So I bought it, I pocketed the other dollar fifty, I, I took care of it, but the issue was in this carton, there was only 12 cupcakes. And there were 13 kids on the party list. I said, okay, so somebody's got to be allergic, right? In our day and age, somebody's got to be allergic. Or some kid's not going to want one. But it didn't go well. I could have taken care of it with the other buck fifty. You can insight into my little life, me, myself. Could have taken care of it. But it didn't go well because throwing this birthday party was supposed to be a demonstration for my kids of my care for them. 
And it just doesn't translate when some kid is left with a couple extra carrots instead of a cupcake. (laughs) Especially if that kid is the birthday kid. (laughs) But back in Jesus' day, the wine running out was even worse. Because back in Jesus' day, as a groom, you had to prove that you could provide for your bride before you could have her. And part of providing for your bride was providing for the party. So that that if this was the first day of what was supposed to be a week-long celebration, and already the wine was running out, that's not a great prediction of what's going to happen down the road. So Mary steps in and says to Jesus, they have no wine. This thing is about to fall off the hinges, and somebody's got to do something. But like any single guy at a wedding, Jesus seems to be thinking about something else. Because he's not thinking about this wedding, but looking past it to his own. Now before you press that too far, listen to Jesus' response. Verse 4 says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Nothing. Because this isn't my wedding. I didn't ask this girl to marry me. I didn't propose to her or pledge my undying love to her or promise that I'd provide for her. So what's it to me, woman, if the wine runs out here? Except if this marriage in Cana was pointing to a better marriage still to come. It's as if Jesus is saying, knowing full well what he's about to do, just remember that on the surface, this isn't about me. Even if I'm about to show you that it's really all about me. Me and my marriage to my people. A lot of people through the ages have looked at how Jesus speaks to his mother here and have either explained it away or expressed how uncomfortable it makes them feel. Woman, what's it to me? And I think I actually side with the latter. But as uncomfortable as it is, I've got to say it gets the point across. If you make this event the end, Jesus says, if you take the wedding, take a wedding, whether it's your own or someone else's, as the measure of satisfaction, you have just stripped this thing of all it's worth. Because for Pete's sake, the wine just ran out. And it's just the first day. So that a longing like marriage can never be an end in itself, but only a means to pointing to something more. I don't know if you're married, if you remember your wedding day, but I remember mine. I do, Kath. I remember. I remember the work that went into it. 
I remember the expectations that were wrapped up with it. And I remember the headache with which I came out of it. And it was nice. We had good friends, good food. We had a good time generally. But I remember driving down the highway thanking God that you're only supposed to go through this once and praying that that would be ever so. Because if this is all there is, it isn't worth it. The wine ran out. That longing you go after, and yet it just doesn't satisfy. Raise your hand if you know what it's like for the wine to run out in life. I know what that's like. That's every day the wine runs out. That's what life is defined by. And you don't even have to be married to know it. You have something you're longing for, but it just doesn't measure up because you're making it the destination when all it's meant to be is a signpost along the way. And marriage is one of God's favorite signposts to point to His love for His people, seen most in the love of His Son for His church. And the, the wine runs out of our marriages because they're meant to point us to a better marriage still to come. So Jesus says that on the surface, this isn't about me. Even if, even if I'm about to show you that it's really all about me. Because Jesus saw through this wedding at Cana first, a better wedding that it pointed to. That is second, celebrated with a better wine. Interesting what Mary says after Jesus' response. Verse 5 says, His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, like she was expecting something. Now it says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are huge jars. And on the one, th- on the one hand, this should remind you of the ministry of John the Baptist. We looked at last time, washing on the outside with water as a, a plea to God that God would wash with something better on the inside. But on the other hand, this should gross you out a bit. This should gross you out a bit because this isn't like a sink where you you turn the water on, you put some soap on your hands, you scrub a bit, and all the dirt goes down the drain. With these huge jars that were probably embedded in the ground, they weren't moving. With these huge jars, all the dirt that was caked on your hands is now going to be caked on the inside of those jars so that the inside of the jars actually end up looking a lot like the inside of your heart. Yeah, we're told in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, the guy who was in charge of the party. So they took it. And they had to be thinking to themselves, better him than me. But in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, one, that it, that it came from Jesus, and two, that it came from those jars. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And you've got to wonder what this young bridegroom was thinking. Because this guy's entire future was on the line. This was the beginning of his marriage. His first chance to prove that he could provide for his bride. And there was even a chance in those days that her family would file suit over the embarrassment if the bridegroom wasn't able to do so. And there's no way if this had already circled around to Jesus that this hadn't also circled around to this groom. And that people were already actually beginning to you know, post it on Facebook and tag him in it. Hey Johnny, thanks for inviting me to the wedding. But what happened to the wine? Hey Johnny, it was a great party. But what happened to the wine? So you've got to wonder what this guy was thinking when not only does the master of the feast call him to tell him that the wine is still flowing, but to tell him that it's the best wine, this master of the feast, ever tasted i always think it's fascinating how little attention is given to the actual miracle ever notice that you're only told that the water turned to wine as the servants are on their way with it because as much as jesus saw that wedding at cana that marriage at cana as pointing to a better marriage still to come it's more about the description of the wine than how it got there from the water. It's pointing to a better marriage that is celebrated with a better wine. That into that debacle of a wedding party, Jesus stepped in to do what that young bridegroom couldn't. Because the irony in all of this is that the single guy is the better bridegroom. Who despite the, the master of the feast declaring that the best wine had been saved for last, actually would provide a better wine that was at that point still to come. And the only wine of the only wedding that ever really satisfies. All because this single guy at that wedding way back when was doing what single guys do and looking forward to his own. Though unlike other single guys, for Jesus, his wedding is the wedding all other weddings point to. But if the wine of that wedding at Cana was the best wine that master of the feast had ever tasted. What is the wine that was still to come? If you've been a part of this faith for very long, it won't be hard to guess. It was a wine that was eventually drawn from Jesus' own blood. A wine we celebrate monthly in the breaking of bread and the taking of a cup. Because it was in Jesus' death on the cross 
that the better bridegroom was providing for his bride. Something that makes her as white as snow. Not just on the outside, but on the inside where nothing ever before could ever reach. To make that better marriage possible that all other marriages before and since point to. It says in verse 11 that this was the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Manifested His glory. The glory we'll see as we walk through this book that's most concentrated in the cross. And it says His disciples, his, His bride believed in Him. Jesus and His bride. A better marriage. Celebrated with a better wine. Let me leave you then with a few encouragements. First, let me encourage you, if you are consumed with being on the outside of marriage and looking in, or if you are at your wit's end on the inside of marriage and looking around, let me encourage you to put marriage, along with every other longing of the human heart, back in its proper place. These are like dinghies. You know what a dinghy is? It's like little boats. They're not meant to get you across the ocean. They're just meant to bring you to the ship of satisfaction in God. You put too much weight on them. You pack them too tight with expectations, and they sink. That's what a dinghy is. They sink. Put longing back where it's meant to be. It's like a a man named Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So let me encourage you to put the longings of life back in their proper place. Not as an end in themselves but as means to point us to something more. Second, let me encourage you to not miss the cross. Sometimes we get so wrapped up wondering whether God loves us and Jesus loves us or whether He's going to provide for us like He's promised to do. And we fret so much about today that we forget what He's already done in days gone by. So don't miss the cross. Because that's the heart of it. Of what He did there for His bride. But then third, let me encourage you also to see the cross for what it was. That while the cross is a symbol of death, it is at the same time a symbol of life. And that while the cross points to how far away from God we were, it also points to how far God's gone to get us near. And John pictures the cross at the end of his Gospel and here at the beginning as a place where both the blood of sacrifice and the wine of satisfaction runs red. 
Because at the cross, our better bridegroom was providing for his bride. One writer put it like this, picking up on the words of an old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. But neath the flood those sinners find, though to their vast surprise, that what was blood is in fact wine that as His bride they rise. Take from that from the tree these mingled flow to life for death provide. He bled to wash us white as snow to be His ever bride. To live is to long. Though life never satisfies the longing. Because our satisfaction is meant to be found in something. No, in someone more. In Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just at the beginning of this gospel. And yet from the very beginning, you've laid out so much. You've made us, we have the opportunity to be your bride, to believe in you like your son's disciples did before. And that for those who believe, you've provided the way to be washed white as snow. I pray that we would see Jesus and see the cross for what it was. Our better bridegroom providing for His bride because He is the groom of the better marriage still to come. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.